With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red from Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Bernardo Ramirez Rios about his new book, Transnational Sport in the American West, Oaxaca, California Basketball, published by Lexington Books in 2019. Bernardo, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Jorge. Thank you for having me today. It's uh, always an honor to talk sports with you. Great, great. Well, welcome welcome to the show. Um, I really liked your book, and I, I, I think one of the, the very best things about this book is the fact that uh, so very little has been done on Latinos uh, and sports. And to be able to have a work that looks at not only a group of Latinos in uh, playing a sport, but also playing a sport that not a lot of folks associate with Latinos. Basketball is a very, very interesting topic. Um, Tell me first a little bit about yourself, your degrees, and where you're working now. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Sacramento, California, and I come from a a very family-oriented community. We valued social diversity and social justice. Uh, My father was a professor for almost 40 years in ethnic studies, and so one of the things that really grounded me as a youth was education, but not only education in and of itself, but how do we bridge education beyond the borders of our universities and our campuses and our schools. And so Mm -hmm. I took that energy to San Diego State and I worked with Dr. Ramona Perez, who is the director of Latin American studies and also professor of anthropology. And it was at San Diego State that I really started to um, study more about anthropology and about what I wanted to do with my degree. And that's where I first started to gain an interest in Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. And it was a seminar. I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in a a graduate seminar and we read a book by Sam Quinones. He's a writer, journalist, worked at the LA Times, Mm -hmm. um, New York Times, wrote the book Dreamland recently. And in this class, we read one of his books, True Tales from Another Mexico. And in that book, he has a chapter on basketball players in Los Angeles from Oaxaca. Um, 
and sort of that whole story. And I really got interested in that. At that time, we had a field school in Oaxaca over the summer at San Diego State. And after reading that chapter, I reached out to Sam and he was kind enough to write me back and put me in touch with some individuals in LA. And then it just sort of snowballed um, into this larger project. And so I took that momentum with me to Ohio State and I worked with Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, who's a Mm -hmm. migration scholar. And uh, continued my field work, and now I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Skidmore College. And so okay. that's the history. All right, now let's let's talk a little bit about your interests in basketball. Uh, did have you did you ever play basketball as a as as a young man? I did, Jorge. And funny story. Um, I'm sitting in the studio right now with a broken toe. I broke my toe last week and I did it, shockingly enough, playing basketball here on campus with some faculty and staff. And so I've always played sports. My father played sports. We played sports year round, baseball, basketball, golf, football, soccer, whatever it was, we were into it. And so sports have always been a big part of my life. And I always tried to integrate it some way within what I was studying in anthropology at the time, even in undergraduate and again at the graduate level. And, you know, as soon as I read that chapter by Sam uh, on basketball in Mexico and in Oaxaca in particular, I knew that was sort of an avenue that I wanted to explore further and try to really understand not just how do the players um, over there understand the basketball, but how do they bring what's the story about them bringing basketball to the U.S.? And so that's what really drove me into my research and to write this book. Okay. Now, you know what, before we start talking specifically about your research in this book, let me just ask you a a, a more general question, because if you read sports history, there's a lot of work that's been done on African-Americans, Native Americans, Jews, Italian-Americans, a lot of different groups. Why do you think that the study of Latino participation in athletics, both historically and just in, in, current, uh, in current events, why do you think that Latinos have gotten short shrift as far as uh, academic research in regards to sport? Well, as uh, that's a loaded question, Jorge, but sure. as, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, you know, I think, I, actually, I don't think, I know the history of Latinx sports and identity and culture has been neglected by the academy as a whole. And as you mentioned before, um, people like uh, Joe Arvena, Jose Alamillo, Ignacio Garcia, uh Sam Regalado and a guy named Jorge Iber. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 great that there are there is a network of us that are are sort of um, uncovering uh, these very significant moments within our U.S. history, our borderland history of how Latinx communities use sports to create identity, to create community, to do good things in community, and how it really, in my own work, how it shapes family, but. Um, on the one hand, it's great, but on the other hand, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate, right? Because we're, there's not even enough of us to field a soccer team, which, yep. is, is, which is really sad. As you mentioned, there's these other fields and other ethnic groups that have um, 
have other attention, have written works, have been appreciated and recognized by the academy as a whole. But Latinx communities are still one of those as a whole um, that are largely ignored. And so that's one of my driving motivations of, of doing my own work. But I also think it's a it's an element or it's a it's been happening for a long time, right? And if you look at sort of the social fabric of the U.S., right, it's whether it's ethnic studies or Latin American studies or Latinx studies, uh, uh, and then you get into the the various ethnic groups within a Latinx community, right? Um, they, they've just always had to do more to be recognized within the academy or within the community or whatever it is. And if you look at sort of the erasure, you know, the the browning of America mm-hmm. and sort of that willingness to try to erase that history um, mm-hmm. and some of the current events even that are just treacherous and sad and, and but reflective of the society that we live in, I think it's an element of all of those things. And I'm just very fortunate that we met um, and a lot of us have come in contact with one another who are doing this good work on writing and researching and working with Latinx communities and telling a history that needs to be told. And I I think that that answer really does a very nice job of setting up a discussion on the book because a lot of what you have just described, a lot of what you've just brought up is exactly what you do in the book. So if, if it's okay with you, let me just sort of move on to the, uh, the actual work. Um, uh, in, at the very beginning, you talk about the migrant mentality and the immigrant reality. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those ideas and I think really most importantly for, for uh, the discussion that we're having here is how does sport tie in with the migrant mentality and the immigrant reality? Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the things during my, my research that I, I really discovered after working with people and hearing their story and witnessing things that had happened in the field in Los Angeles, and I opened up the book with kind of this story of one of my teammates at the time, Esteban, uh, going to the local courts uh, for a practice that we usually did in the later evenings after it cooled off, mm-hmm. and him having a run-in with a with a, a checkpoint, a driver's license checkpoint. You know, mm-hmm. and at that moment that that um, an individual's whole world could be turned upside down. And I think one of the things we've seen this recently with the with the ice raids um, nationally in, in Mississippi and, and other places like that in factories, right. whether it's communities and, and small business or labor markets. And um, I think one of the things that I really wanted to do in this book is make it very apparent that any individual is going to try to better themselves so that they could have provide a better life for their kids and their family. Mm-hmm. It's the story of human history, right? We will walk or drive or swim or fly or whatever it is to find something that's better so that we could provide an, a better life for ourselves and our family. 
But within that, I think one of the things that I wanted to highlight in this opening chapter is that there's a really harsh reality to migration and to um, not just individuals who migrate, but families that have migration stories within them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the individuals who I worked with in this book, some were undocumented, some were not, some were third, fifth generation. But when an individual is faced with this reality of um, being stopped at a checkpoint, an ice raid, um, any other thing that would disrupt the nucleus of a family, this is a very harsh reality for individuals. And um, it's, it's something that I really wanted to highlight in the beginning of the chapter. And how sports plays a role in this is for a lot of the individuals I talked to, it was the one moment in their day, just like Esteban, it was the one moment in his day in which he could lace up his sneakers, he could be surrounded by family and friends, he could play on the same team as his brother, as his cousin, as his compadre from the same town that he's from. And he didn't have to think about money. He didn't have to think about being sent back to Mexico. He didn't have to think about what his kids will do without him there. He didn't have to think about um, a job, you know, social issues, whatever it may be, all these pressures of life that many migrants face. It was that one couple hours out of the day in which he could, as he said, kind of get a break from this reality. It was the time that he could just play and not think about anything. And I think when you talk to a lot of athletes, um, they feel that sense too, right? Sports or other sort of physical activities is sort of a, a release. Runners talk about this all the time, right? About right. People who are really into running, you know, and, and really driven by it, talk about it as a release and this sort of euphoric, you know, moment in, in their day in which they could sort of just break free and, and free their mind. And so... That's really what I wanted to do in the opening chapter is try to uh, paint a picture for the reader so that they could empathize with this sort of daily lived experience um, of what it's like to be a family member. And even though um, there's individuals who have certain situations and are undocumented, um, this has a domino effect on everybody within the family and then within communities as well. And it's really a disruption in that. And, and I try to highlight those stories throughout the book and not just starting with, with Esteban, but, but later with, with other subjects and, uh, or with my other you know, collaborators now who I consider family. Okay. Well, and one of the things that I think individuals who pick up this book would find interesting is when you think about Mexicans, you know, the, 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 the country of Mexico, you, you don't necessarily associate Mexico with basketball. You know, you think about soccer, you think about, to a lesser extent, baseball, uh, to an even lesser extent, uh, American football, <laughs> but you don't really, you don't really think about basketball all that much. How important is basketball to Mexico in general, and how important is basketball specifically to Oaxaca? Why why does why is Oaxaca so into basketball as opposed to 
uh, other parts of the country? It's a great question. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a question I've gotten it. I've gotten at every single talk I've ever given about my, or every single conference I've ever talked about my research. Usually, the first question is, "Why basketball?" You know, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, first thing that comes to mind is soccer, uh, baseball, um, just about any other sport than basketball. And particularly in Oaxaca, which is a highly indigenous state, one of the poorest states, has the highest, uh, one of the highest indigenous populations and indigenous speakers, basketball um, is even more uh, of a question there. And so after digging into the history of basketball, there wasn't a lot of work on basketball in Mexico in general. And so one of the things I discovered is that Basketball first arrived at around the early part of the 20th century with Catholic missionaries. Mm -hmm. And when I discovered this in some readings and some um, archives, uh, that made sense to me. I had known that basketball was really big in the Philippines as well. And when you have that sort of Spanish parallels and you have the missionaries and it's Catholic missionaries as well, that made sense to me. I said, okay, well, Catholic missionaries cruising around uh, Mexico, bringing the sport. Um, and then when I dug a little bit deeper, I realized that it was not just the Catholic missionaries, but it was very integrated within the politics in Mexico as well. And so when you looked at Porfirio Diaz early on and some of these state-building policies, Cardenas later, they really tried to emphasize state and sort of social network building in, in some of the policies around the country and in some of the poorer states like Oaxaca and the more remote rural places, these sort of modern sports like basketball were really pushed um, heavily in these areas as sort of this mechanism and this idea by the state to socialize individuals or socialize the indigenous people right into becoming a more homogenous ethnic makeup of what modern Mexico would be. And which is great. And it actually makes sense from a physical and geographical sense as well. Mm -hmm. Oaxaca is a very diverse, has a very diverse topography. You go from the beach to the valley to the mountains to the jungle, you know, to the highlands, dry desert. Um, it, it's just all over the place. And in this specific region in Oaxaca, it's mostly mountains. And so big, large soccer fields don't really make a lot of sense in the mountains. It's hard to find a flat area. And so a nice basketball court that could double as a community space, a communal space to meet that could double as a space for other events, performances, all these other things kind of made sense. And so it worked for a long time and it became part of integrated within the communities in Oaxaca, especially in the Sierra Norte where, where I did this research. And over time it just became integrated and it turned more into not just a reflection of the state and of this identity about being Mexican, but it really changed to a mechanism in which communities could use sports 
as a way to bridge networks with other communities. It became integrated in fiestas, became integrated in other celebrations and things like that. And so it just kind of, kind of caught a life on its own, as you could say, just like baseball in, in Venezuela or in Cuba or in, in the Dominican Republic. You know, it kind mm-hmm. of, it started as this introduction into a, a sort of modern way of life, but then it sort of took on its own local sense of identity and local life of its own. Now you you've touched upon upon this a little bit earlier when you were telling us the the story of 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 your uh, of your teammate in, in uh, from chapter one, uh, but give us give us a sense of how this sport and this passion for the sport how and when does it arrive in the United States and I think even more broadly and more importantly I would say. What role does it play in the development of these Oaxacan communities in California? Uh, you know, you, you've you've referred to how this is part of community formation and 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 solidarity within individual communities down in Oaxaca. How does that how does that translate to the United States? Uh, are there tournaments? Are there uh, uh, particular events that surround some of these basketball teams, these basketball games, these basketball tournaments? What can you tell mm-hmm. us about that? Yeah, great question. And so, speaking with some of uh, a lot of individuals in in Oaxaca, you know, they all have these great. Uh, tales and stories about the early days of basketball in their town and in their communities and who used to be great and who was not so great and what town, you know, used to win all the time. And so I really enjoyed this part of my work uh, over the course of 10 years, talking with a lot of the, the elders, mostly men, who played basketball in Oaxaca and, and in the Sierra Norte, and their tales about um, how they used to get a, a group of guys together and they would walk. It would take them a whole day to walk to another town and they'd play a game and then come all the way back. Mm-hmm. And back then they used to just play it for fun. You know, it was a way of sort of kind of bragging rights, you know what I mean? To be like, yeah. oh, the guys over in this town, you know what I mean? There's some good ball players over there. Oh, really? How good are they? Oh, well, then we'll play them, you know. And so it was a sort of uh, mechanism in which they could sort of showcase their ability. And, and it really tied into sort of this, that idea of machismo and, and things like that. And then it escalated into a little bit. And then, then they're, they started to gamble a little bit, you know. Okay, well, let's play for, you know, a chicken. All right, let's play for a, uh, a goat. Let's play for a bull. You know, let's play for some money. And so over the years, you know, the, the sport really took on a identity of itself and became a really big significant part of sort of the overall identity of the region. Mm-hmm. And it sort of just, you know, escalated and became bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they started having tournaments. Then the basketball games became a part of the, of the fiesta celebrations uh, for every town in the region. And during the which are on different dates around the patron saints days in the, with the Catholic religion. So they're all on different dates. And so every, during every fiesta, there'd be a basketball tournament and 
they would fight surrounding towns and you know they would all play against one another and then when the next town had their fiesta the same thing would happen and so it was a sort of uh, way to network resources and during the 1970s when network migration to the US was really uh, on an upturn and on a, on a real increase a lot of the men who migrated to the U.S. and in Los Angeles in particular took basketball with them. It was such an integral part of their life already in Mexico during these fiestas, playing against other guys and in tournaments in Mexico that when they got to the U.S. and they you know, were working various jobs, well, what's the one thing you want to do after a hard day of work uh, when, you know, Maybe an employer's not paying you. You're looking for a job. You're trying to find somebody, a family member, and locate someone. Um, the basketball court or the public basketball court in the evening became an epicenter to where you just arrived from Oaxaca in L.A. Well, I know where to go to find somebody that I know possibly, or I know where to go to locate a family member. I know where to go to maybe find a job. I know to go to where to go to find a good game. And so the public park in the 70s for a lot of men in particular became this place, a gathering place to play basketball after work. Again, a release from that sort of immigrant reality mm -hmm. of leaving their families, of that vulnerability, the not knowing, um, you know, is this going to work out, the next job? all of these questions and, and worries that a lot of immigrants have from, from Oaxaca uh, was a place to, to release. And so they started playing after work in the seventies and slowly, but surely they started again. Well, let's make it a little more structured rather than just open run kind of gatherings at the park in the evening. Let's try to make a tournament. And so early on they tried to really do tournaments and, they started with Sundays because Sunday is a family day. It's a church day. Usually everyone's free. And so they started making Sunday uh, the day where they created more structured tournaments. And they started sort of recreating the community politics that were in Oaxaca. They created teams that represented towns or communities in the Sierra Norte. They got their brothers, their cousins, their brother-in-laws, whoever it was, to all play on the same team, play against other towns, and they really really started to create, and this is where you begin to see these transnational networks in parallel with the rise of kind of technology and communication and this integration of basketball being played in the U.S. and still uh, that culture and identity that goes on in Mexico. Let me let me ask you two questions based on these points that, that, that you've just brought up. Number one, and, and this one, I guess, will, will, will sort of take you back to Mexico for just a second. Do the Oaxacans play against other states? Do they play? In other words, is there, uh, uh, you know, is, is what goes on in Oaxaca, uh, replicated elsewhere in Mexico, and do they compete against some of these other states? That's number one. Mm -hmm. And number two, every, you know, we've only spoken up to this point about men, 
playing basketball? Is there something along the same lines happening with women playing basketball in Oaxaca and maybe even on a broader national Mexican scale? Mm-hmm. Great question. And so other states, um, basketball is big. Uh, most of the professional basketball players of Mexican descent are from the northern region, like Chihuahua, where they're much taller. Mm-hmm. But in terms of this local real integration into fiestas and uh, local religion and communities playing against one another, I would argue that Oaxaca is sort of the epicenter of that. But other southern bordering states, uh, Guerrero, basketball is really big. And Chiapas, uh, basketball is really big as well. Um, but in this one particular region in Oaxaca, uh, I would I would argue that it's sort of it is the sport. They play soccer and they play basketball, but I mean baseball, but in other sports, but basketball really is the the sport. You know, you don't talk about anything else other than basketball, really. And a lot of the guys uh, that I spoke with in the town, you know, that played early on in the fifties and sixties, and then later in the seventies, and some of the elders, you know, they have. Uh, their their kids bottom satellite television, you know, and they're and they watch basketball very closely in a very small town all over the Seattle Norte and Oaxaca, and that that is their sport. So it really is a, a part of their culture and their identity. And speaking on the women basketball players. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting when asking individuals about the history of basketball is always surrounded around men. And one of the things I wanted to do in my own work was really try to explore how do the women play a role in these tournaments and mm-hmm. these gatherings at the local parks? What is their their role in all of this? But also, yeah, what about the, the women players? And when did that sort of um, evolve? And what I discovered is women played in Mexico, but it was very, um, it wasn't the main attraction. And it still isn't the main attraction. Mm-hmm. In the big tournament, in a lot of big tournaments, they will do a sequence of final games. There's a bunch of different levels in which they play. And they'll do a sequence of final games and the sort of the open division, which is the most competitive division, the women always play third, fourth to the last game. The, the open division, which is the best women's division, will play, and then you'll get the teenage boys. You'll get the, uh, the young men under 23. You'll get the masters of it, division players who are, you know, in their 50s and the veterans who are above 50 and then you'll get the open run men and so when you look at sort of the gender of it the female basketball players are still sort of under underrepresented and in i believe that are not recognized as much as the men in mexico although i think the best there's two sisters from a t- particular town in Oaxaca, and I think they're the best players ever. I don't, I don't think anybody touches their record and from what I discovered, but yet they're still seen as side, sort of secondary. 
Um, so it's interesting to sort of see that that role um, in the game itself, but it has increased, and a lot of uh, my, a lot of my collaborators and the people that I work with in Los Angeles uh, were women and young women, um, young adults who were using basketball as an opportunity to to be close with their family, to learn more about their culture and their heritage, and mm-hmm. to play with their cousins and all these things. So you know, in the U.S. It was this opportunity for kids, male or female, to practice the game of basketball, but not just practice the game of basketball, but learn more about themselves, their parents, grandparents, where they're from, you know, their heritage, their town, the language they spoke, and all these other great uh, cultural things that made them who they are in the U.S. as young people. Is, is this translating into the sons and the daughters of some of these older um, immigrants, is it translating into the, these, the sons and the daughters of these people playing basketball, say at the high school level, locally in, in the Los Angeles area, and maybe even some playing for, you know, for, for small colleges or even junior colleges. Have you seen anything like that happening? Yes. uh, Some players in Oaxaca have, gone on and played at some of the universities throughout Mexico mm-hmm. at the university level. So that's players in Oaxaca playing, leaving Oaxaca and going out and playing um, at different universities and at, at a pretty high level. And there, there's some really good players there. And so a lot of men and the women as well playing at the local colleges. On the U.S. side, I would say a lot of the third, fourth generation, it has translated into playing competitively uh, at AAU, um, but also at the high school level. Quite mm-hmm. a few players playing at the high school level or participated at the high school level. And a few that I spoke with who played a little bit at, at the junior college level or um, sort of that secondary level. None of none that I know of at the Division three or at the four-year university level, okay. but still highly competitive and some very good players. And actually... Um, I just spoke with uh, Pika, who's the individual on the cover of the book, uh, yesterday, talking about the cover, and he's very proud that he's on the cover. Um, but he's a he was a he is still a very very good basketball player and ve- played competitively at the high school level, was good enough to make varsity at a very young age, and so there are individuals who um, it's sort of as some other. Uh, some people I spoke with describe it really is they think of basketball as a part of them as it runs as they say it runs through their veins you know and so they really really embrace that and practice it and want to be really good and so an individual like Pico who plays at a very very or who played at a very high division played at a pretty big high school in Los Angeles and at a high level um, is an example of that okay now You've talked a little bit about the 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 development of the tournaments. Uh, chapter four of your book specifically looks at the Copa Benito Juarez mm. and how does that Copa, how does that tournament come about and how and why is it significant to the community? This chapter is one of my favorite chapters throughout the book 
because when I discovered there was a tournament and held in the honor of Benito Juarez, who was born in Oaxaca, Mexico, and was the first indigenous president in Mexico. He helped write the Constitution in 1857, and he was the president off and on for many years. And so he really is a national icon in Mexico. And when I discovered that there was a tournament behind this, I really wanted to, to learn more about it and what was the story about it. And Beneath the Waters really is the essence of what makes the tournament great. Um, and in 1977, a committee of communities in Oaxaca, Benito Juarez was born in Guelatao, Oaxaca. And so the sports commission in Guelatao wanted to create this tournament in his honor. And so they recruited a bunch of communities from the surrounding area and wanted to really uh, make a structured annual tournament, set the guidelines. And so they created uh, level, different levels, competition levels. They created the bylaws and the guidelines and how the tournament was to be played, what the Copa actually meant and how you would win a Copa, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and they started this tournament in 1977. And so just a few years back was the 40th anniversary? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 40th anniversary of, of the tournament. And... I first learned about the tournament in Los Angeles. Uh, some of my collaborators and, and individuals were telling me about the Copa, and I first went to it in Los Angeles and learned about it and really watched all these towns and everybody compete one, with one another from as small as kids who could barely pick up a basketball and uh, just little children running around. The score was, you know, four to two. Mm-hmm. Um, two old individuals uh what they would call the the master uh the master's division which is uh above 50 so you had great grandfathers out there playing in this tournament and little kids playing out in the tournament who probably didn't even know what they were doing and so just to, and everyone in between so to see the whole Oaxacan community in Los Angeles really come out and you saw, I saw individuals who weren't there on the regular tournament weekends. And so it was a really big deal. And it's an opportunity. It really is a statement on the state of Oaxaca, beneath the waters and, and where he's from. And then also just the sport in general. And, and it really is a, that tournament or the Copa is sort of the face of Oaxacan basketball to say, we're Oaxacan, we're here. This is what we do. This is a part of us. This is our history. Uh, you know, although it's a state that it's increased popularity recently, you know, but it's a state that um, at times has been marginalized and, and sort of forgotten or swept under the rug that we're here. This is what we do. This is what makes us different from, you know, other Mexicans, quote unquote, Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Copa really, really is special. And in order to win a Copa, you have to win it three times in a row and then you get the actual cup. OK. So, okay. yeah. So it's, it's actually really, really hard to win an actual Copa, you could win the tournament in a given year, but you have to win it three times in a row to win the actual Copa. So you have to win it three consecutive years. And so it's really, really hard to do. 
Um, and it's just great to see every year teams really compete um, to try to get the the ultimate prize. Do teams from California go down to Oaxaca? Do teams from Oaxaca come up to California as part of this as part of this competition? Yes, and so uh, that kind of segues into my next um, chapter of talking about the youth and sort of the next right. generation. And what I discovered is that there was sort of this transnational. Uh, characteristic of the Copa. So in Los Angeles or in the U S in Los Angeles, the Copa, there was the Copa Benito Juarez, which consisted of all teams from the Sierra Norte in Oaxaca, the original communities like in Mexico, and they all competed against one another. But there are bylaws in the Copa that state you have to be, a resident or a direct descendant of somebody from the community. Mm-hmm. So either your grandparent, parent has to be a direct descendant or a, uh, a resident of that community in order to be eligible to play in the Copa in Los Angeles. So with these very strict restrictions, um, they decided to make another Copa called the Copa Oaxaca, which included all all towns and communities from Oaxaca. So there was sort of two separate Copas going on. The Copa Juarez, which was from the Sierra Norte, and you had to be direct resident or direct relation, familial ties to a community. In the other, in the open Copa Oaxaca, you just had to have a, a direct tie to the state of Oaxaca in general. And... In Los Angeles, there's every year there's this heated debate on whether in certain individuals are eligible to play or not, mm-hmm. which is really, really interesting to see how these social politics unfold and how the sporting commission and the committee decides who is eligible to play or not. And a lot of this revolves around whether the individual is actually pretty good or not, right? Yeah. And so you have teams and communities really – uh, trying to push the boundaries of, you know, what makes somebody quote unquote Oaxacan or not, you know? Um, and I saw this, uh, in my personally, in my own research in Los Angeles, you have to have be a direct descendant or have a familial tie to Oaxaca. However, in New Jersey, since it's a smaller population and there's just not as many individuals, they sort of created the Copa and made it sort of open to more, kind of more of the Latinx community in this yeah. small town in New Jersey. And so through my ties in Los Angeles and in, in the community in Oaxaca, I was able to play in the Copa Benito Juarez in New Jersey because of my ties to the, a town in Oaxaca and some of my networks that I had in Los Angeles. And so they allowed me to play for the town in New Jersey because I had been going there and, you know, I'd visited enough times and enough people knew me that they were like, oh, yeah, well, you're kind of an honorary Oaxacan, so you get to play for the town over here. Okay. Whereas in Los Angeles, that would never happen. Um, And in Oaxaca, the stakes are even higher because that is the epicenter of of the tournament that is the the epicenter of culture and sport that they they're very very strict on 
who gets to play. You have to submit paperwork, birth certificates, <laughs> um, documents to the sports commission months ahead of time. The town verifies, you know, through the church, through the archives, where that person was from, looks at stamps, gets verified by officials. You are given a document and an ID card with your picture. And every individual who's playing in the tournament has an ID card. You have to present your ID card before every game. The referees and the, and the scoring table verifies that information. Um, and so it's a, it's a very, very strict um, process in Oaxaca. And so it's interesting to see how the, how the politics play out. And, yeah, a lot of kids... Uh, in particular, Pika, who's on the cover, you know, he's born, raised in Los Angeles, seldomly visited his father's town, but his father is from one of the communities in the Sierra Norte. And so really his father and his town, his town sort of recruited him because he's, he's a very good player. Mm-hmm. So his town sort of recruited him to play with his cousins for the town in the Copa and Oaxaca. And so here you see a kid who's, uh, you know, second, third generation, but basketball is such a big part of him because he grew up watching his father play in tournaments in L.A., watching his father watch basketball all the time, talking about basketball, playing basketball at the park. Saw it be saw it as such an important part of his family and and his father and his cousins that he grew up with that passion. And so when the opportunity to play for his father's town and a chance to win a win the tournament and win the Copa, something that his father was never able to do. He really jumped at that opportunity and took it very serious. And it was a big sort of moment for him in his life to really solidify who he is, where he's from, what he's about, and really ground his own identity as being Oaxacan, being Mexican, and being Latino. Um, and really ground that in, as a part of his identity and who he is and what makes him who he is in the U.S. And so he's just one example, but you see a lot of young people and other, uh, mostly youth, who travel either as a family or as individuals down to Oaxaca to play in this big tournament every March. Um, and a lot of times they get their whole trip paid for if they're good enough. So the community will gather resources pay for their plane tickets, pay for their housing, you know, feed them and all that uh, just for the chance to try to go far in the, in the tournament. So okay. it's, it's a really interesting thing to see. And, and um, the tournament just keeps growing every year in Oaxaca. And in 2000, I may get the date wrong, but around 2011, 2012, they, they built an arena in, in Gelatao um, with, um, some help from the state and um, part of the federal programs, you know, Dos Por Uno and things like that from um, resources in the U.S. To, to build a big, nice stadium where they play the final games now. And so every year uh, you see individuals from the U.S. and you see license plates from New Jersey, Florida, California, uh, Texas, um, Washington, see license plates from all over the place of individuals who've traveled down there 
to play for their town, play with their compadres, play with their family members. And a lot of times they bring their family as well. And so it's kind of like a, uh, it's a cultural retreat, right? It's, um, it's like taking your family to the museum to learn, um, but it's your own personal museum, right? (laughs) It's it's taking your family to learn to, to the museum to learn about, uh, where you're from, what you're about, and why basketball plays a huge role in, in your life. So I, I guess it would be, it, it's safe to argue that the study of the significance of sport in Latino, Latinx life would be a very good field for academicians to study and, and to, to try to mine in, in, in the next few years. Absolutely. And I think now it's not great, right? But at least we're seeing classes, uh, research centers, uh, professors, classes, you know, opportunities for students to take classes in a variety of Latin America and Latinx studies courses. Mm -hmm. Um, And just at my own university, oh, we're hoping to provide other classes like the the Afro Latinx populations and history, especially in sport and in Puerto Rico. Basketball has always been a, a big part of uh, uh, sport sporting in 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 Puerto Rico. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of these histories that are that are diverse in so many ways. And for such a long time, society and the academy has tried to homogenize it as this you know, blanket Latin, Latin American, Latino, um, field or, or representation of, of the people in the communities, but there's such diverse regions and, and ethnic groups within the Latinx community. I think it's, it's a time right now is a very unique time and a very big opportunity for students to really investigate what are some of these really intricate local histories like Oaxaqueños in Los Angeles and in New Jersey and in Utah and other places. What are these local histories and how have they manifested over time? And how have they created a really rich cultural uh, fabric for these communities like Oaxaqueños in Los Angeles from the Sierra Norte to where sport is really integrated within who they are, what they're about and what they do. And how can sport or how can we view sport, research sport, and um, get it out there to, to a larger audience that sport really is a vehicle to, to recreate the great things about family, community, and society. Well, uh, Bernardo, we've covered a lot of ground, and I, I guess really the last thing I just want to ask you is, is there any aspect of your research that we have not covered that you think uh, it, it, that you would like to mention uh, before before we finish up? Yeah, I think, uh, well, thank you first. Thank you for having me. And one of the things I, I did want to mention and draw uh, listeners and readers' attentions to is sort of the the last chapter and I think it's it's a chapter that is still relevant and I think it's going to be relevant for for a very long time and that is in parallel with some of the issues that we're facing as a society in this um, in the U.S. today 
um, with immigration um, and the need and necessity for immigration reform. In the last chapter, I highlight some people who I consider family now, uh, people like Miguel and Lola in particular, who um, is a is a dreamer. She arrived in the U.S. in Los Angeles when she was one years old. She grew up in Los Angeles. All she knows is Los Angeles. Um, and she played basketball growing up, went to tournaments with her father who played, grew up going to these tournaments and spending time with family on the weekends. And it really became a big part of her. And she took that passion and uh, did very well in high school went to um, California State University, a four-year institution in California, um, all out of pocket, worked her way through undergraduate, graduated with honors in journalism, um, ended up working and interning at a news station in uh, Colorado for a l- or in Washington for a little bit, excuse me, um, but who is still facing what I would call this immigrant reality. Mm-hmm. Right. She's living the American dream. She's done everything right. She's um, been a good person. She's never been in trouble. She loves basketball. She was fortunate. Uh, I'm fortunate enough that she shared, shared her story with me. Uh, we've been friends now for over 10 years. And so we consider each other cousins. And I visited her to her family in Mexico because she's never been able to go. Um, I've spent time with her family in Los Angeles. I've been a bridge to take things and send things and send messages. And so I would really just encourage uh, listeners and readers of the book to, and Lola's not the only one, there there are thousands and if not hundreds of thousands of individuals just like this spread across the country who have the very, very similar stories. And one of the things that I would encourage listeners and readers to do is really pay attention to, um, if they read the book, this this last chapter and really try to, to empathize with how much we need immigration reform and some of these changes in the U.S. to bring attention to these issues that individuals are facing because um, this is the future of the U.S. These are the individuals who are making America um, better. And so I would just encourage the reader to empathize with that and and to uh, read into it and do whatever they can at their local community level to to help individuals and help bring awareness to this topic. Okay. Well, Bernardo, this is uh, uh, we've we've taken up a, a, a believe it or not we, we've gone past uh, fifty three minutes already. We've taken up quite a bit of your time. Uh, this is a great project. Uh, I am glad that uh, that that we've had the opportunity to to visit. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and and uh, you know I I strongly strongly recommend uh, for folks out there to. Uh, to pick up a copy of the book and to uh, learn more about this wonderful topic. It's a topic that uh, is not well explored in, in, in academic circles, but there certainly seems to be uh, a lot of good research possibilities out there. So thank Absolutely. you very much for visiting with us. And before we leave, Jorge, I just want to say, you know, I'm just very blessed because I really want to rec- recommend or commend, you know, the work you do, uh, uh, Joe Arvena, Jose Alamillo, and Ignacio, and Samuel, and all the other individuals who really set the precedent to to be able for me to provide me the opportunity to do this work, but not also not only to do the work, but 
the opportunity to really share it at this level. And so, you know, there's a generation of individuals who really um, paved the way. And I'm just very blessed and thankful that you all have uh, committed your, your life work to doing this research. And I encourage others to hop on board because we need to fill out the soccer team.